Father, thank you that those truths of which we sing, of which we embrace, are not are not some just distant facts outside of us, but they are the very truths, the very reality that define our lives, that we rest in, that we hope in, that we have every confidence in. Indeed, you did bear our sin on the cross who know you, our Lord. Indeed, you will return. and Indeed, you will establish your kingdom and we will be with you forever and ever. What glorious truths. But before that time comes, there's destruction, there's misery, there's a world full of those things that bring dishonor to you and that grieve our hearts. And indeed, it's what the world must pass through before you bring in your kingdom. As we look at some of these details again this morning, we ask that you would fill us with a sense of the gravity of sin, of your holiness, of the seriousness and sobriety that should mark the lives of your people as we interact in this world and wait for that kingdom that is to come. And of hope to know that as bad as sin is and as much power as you have allowed Satan at this time, you are the one who reigns and you will make all things right in your own timing. And that is our hope. Impress these truths upon us this morning by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. As we return to Jesus' teaching about this future age, this time that is coming upon the world, this time that is coming to the nation of Israel, it is a future time, it is a devastating time, it is a grievous time to anticipate that we anticipate and that His people will have to undergo. But it is a time, as we've said in our songs and in our prayer, that will end with the establishment of the kingdom of Christ that will end with the glory of God and His people worshiping Him. It is a time, as was already mentioned, that is coming specifically upon the nation of Israel, specifically upon the Jewish people. It is a time that's coming on the world generally. All will suffer. But Jesus is particularly here focusing on His intentions for the nation of Israel. The rise of the Antichrist and His kingdom. A satanically controlled kingdom that will be under the leadership of a final wicked world ruler and a false prophet over a false religious system whose sole design is to destroy God's people. Now while a mark of this coming kingdom is an increase globally of the love for wickedness, of a rejection of the truth, of the reign of unrighteousness, something that we clearly see in our time. That's no secret. That, in fact, is not the primary mark, the primary signs that would draw our attention to the reality of the nearness of this coming event. More specifically, it is this. It is the increase in the global hatred of the people of God, of Christians particularly. It is the increase of a global concentration of hatred and toward the nation of Israel. 
And the increasing hostility toward Israel from not only the Palestines, but other nations is constantly paraded before us in the news and was dramatically displayed once again as it has been many times with Israel's Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech at the UN where he accused them, the nations who were gathered there, of being silent at the persecution and the hostilities that are increasing toward the nation of Israel. Not only from Iran, not only from Muslim nations, but it is a silence that is global, essentially. And there has equally been a silence from the world, largely against the persecution of Christians. Primarily in as far as what's spreading by ISIS, but nations in the world that hate the message of Christ, it is to them a threat. One example, however, from the global persecution through ISIS comes through this report. The reporter says this, A 12-year-old boy was tortured and killed along with 11 other Christians weeks ago in Syria. ISIS militants cut off the boy's fingertips severely beat him and the others before crucifying them. Eight other ministry team members, that is those who were there to actually give aid through a Christian agency, a relief agency. Eight other ministry team members, including two women, were publicly raped, were beheaded. The eight were offered the choice of converting to Islam, but refused to renounce Christ. They prayed as they knelt before the Islamic State militants. According to the ministry leader who spoke with relatives and villagers while visiting the site, he said, Villagers said some were praying in the name of Jesus. Others said some were praying the Lord's Prayer. And others said some of them lifted their heads to commend their spirits to Jesus. The ministry director told Christian Aid Mission, One of the women looked up and seemed to be almost smiling as she said, Jesus, end quote. Now these kind of atrocities again are happening over and over and over and time and time again with a world that is largely silent. Trying to blend these into just general persecutions, they ignore the fact of the specific hatred that is amounting against Christians. But they're but a small portrait of what will take place when Antichrist is given the power to unleash his hatred globally towards all the saints and Israel, even before many of them would return to Christ and know Him as their Messiah. And it is that period that Jesus is addressing here in Matthew 24. So we have maintained, we have claimed throughout that here then in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is beginning in verse 4 specifically describing the time that is future that was referenced in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 9, the 70th week, the, the culmination of all of God's plans for His people, Israel. A time known as the tribulation period. The final seven years before the return of Christ. That is to say then that these are not events that generally describe the church age, though there is some overlap. And these are not events that describe specifically or are focused on what happened to the Jews near the end of the Jewish rebellion in 70 AD. He's referring to a time future under the reign of the Antichrist. The events of 70 AD were terrible indeed, but they foreshadowed the devastation that would come later in the future. In the same way that the horrors of the events during the reign of the Seleucid king Antiochus IV foreshadowed those of the Antichrist that is to come. 
The events of 70 AD, however, did not involve the flight after an abomination of desolation, which Jesus specifically designates as the turning point during this period. It did not involve a covenant of peace that was broken in the middle of the week that Daniel anticipated in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Nor did it end with the return of Christ and the establishment of righteousness, which again is what Jesus expects in Matthew 24 and the passages we've looked at in the Old Testament, particularly Daniel. So these are all events that await the final kingdom of the Antichrist. Now specifically, verses 4 through 14 of Matthew chapter 24 describe the first half of the first three and a half years of this seven-year period, this tribulation period, this final week of Daniel, the 70th week. Verses 15 through 28 describe the last three and a half years and will end with the return of Christ to establish His kingdom. He'll begin dealing with that specifically in verse 29. Verse 15 marks a transition, Matthew 24, 15, to the middle of this period and the revealing of the Antichrist's true intentions against the nation of Israel, particularly, where he unleashes terrible persecution and receives religious worship from an unbelieving world. Now, before we look at Matthew chapter 24, however, I want you to turn with me over to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Turn there with me for just a few moments here before we get into our main passage this morning. And I want you to look at Luke 21 first for three basic reasons. First is this, because as we compare Scripture with Scripture, it's important that we take careful, that we're careful to notice each passage in its context. Secondly, because Luke reminds us here in Luke 21 specifically of the significance of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD as a foreshadowing of the terror of the reign of Antichrist. And thirdly, because 70 AD indeed was a horrible, horrible time in the history of the nation of Israel, but it was only a part of the terror and destruction that will come in the future. Now, we have covered some of the gory details about all that the people of Israel suffered and the Jews suffered during the siege of Jerusalem, particularly the horrors of starvation as the Roman army surrounded the walls of Jerusalem and cut off food and so forth. We've covered some of that in Matthew 23, 37 through 39. I won't repeat that here. However, it is important to note again that this was a significantly devastating time in the history of Israel. Josephus notes that there were approximately 1.1 million people who died during that time. 97,000, he says, were carried off to be sold as slaves. They were captured by the Romans. And indeed, while some of those figures may be exaggerated, they were still very large numbers. Luke 21 focuses on that, on those particular events. If you notice back in verse 7 of Luke 21, the disciples there are again questioning Jesus. A slightly different question is recorded here than in Matthew chapter 24. They say, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Jesus then begins His answer in verses 8 through 9, largely repeating in a condensed form what... Matthew covers in verses 4 through 14, namely wars, rumors of wars, so on and so forth. 
And then in verse 12, though, he makes an interesting statement. He says, but before all of these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you to synagogues, prisons, and so forth. And yet God will give you strength in that time to be a testimony to him. In other words, the the events that Luke records, beginning in verse 12, are events that are going to precede those of verses 8 through 11. They're going to come first. They're going to characterize the experience of the disciples before the destruction of the temple, and they mark the persecution that will attend what is known as the church age. Then beginning in verse 20... Notice that he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then he gives instructions similar to those in Matthew to flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of the city must leave. Verse 22, These are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Verse 23, The pregnant and nursing babes are going to have particular troubles. Verse 24, They'll fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And you'll notice there some language, you will, when we get back to Matthew 24, that indeed is similar to those that Jesus addresses to a yet future generation. But there are also some marked differences, and I want you to note just a few of them briefly. Luke does not ground his instructions to the Jews in this particular passage in the appearance of the abomination of desolation in the temple in Jerusalem as Jesus does in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Nor does he mention that this is a unique and an unrepeatable time of human suffering, as Jesus does in Matthew chapter 24, verse 21. Neither does he mention that it is a time that needs to be cut short for any life to be saved, implication any life in the world, because this is, in fact, a different event. Luke is focusing on particularly on the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. And notice what again what he says at the end. After this, after it has been captured, after it has been destroyed, after the suffering of the people, there will be a time where it is trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until that time of the Gentiles has been fulfilled. So when Luke here then is focusing on the near fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. The rebellion actually ended in 73 A.D. with a small group on the hills of Masada. Those were the last ones essentially to fall in that revolt. But it was the main part of it in 70 A.D. at the end of the famine when their general Titus, they swept in and and caused massive destruction to the nation of Israel. And those events were indeed severe, severe, but they were a foreshadowing of the coming destruction of her Antichrist. And those are the events that Luke is focusing on in Luke chapter 21. Matthew is focusing, however, on the far fulfillment of this prophecy. And that is the events of the Antichrist during the end of the age, the birth pangs, the time just before Jesus returns, which were foreshadowed in the destruction of Jerusalem and its attendant horrors. They share common language because the events are so closely intertwined and related to one another. Just as the life of Antiochus was to the life of the future Antichrist. 
And so the events of 70 AD with the final destruction in Jerusalem under Antichrist are woven in in some of the language with the events under the destruction of Jerusalem by General Titus in 70 AD. This is how prophetic scripture speaks as we've looked at before. Now turn back to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 verse 15. And we'll read the passage here this morning. I'll begin in verse 15, read down to verse 28. And over the next two weeks, we'll cover then four words that Jesus has regarding the great tribulation. We'll cover the first two this morning. Read with me beginning in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, Behold, he is in the inner room, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be, wherever the corpse is. There the vultures will gather. Go back up to verse 16. And let's note his first word of instruction to those in Israel at this time. And it is for them to flee and to pray. To flee and to pray in verses 16 through 20. Notice he says, flee while you can. Then those who are in Judea, flee to the mountains. The one who is on his rooftop, let him not come down to get his things out of the house. The one who is in the fields, let him not turn back to gather his garments. Three imperatives, commands, to flee while you can. Flee decisively, leaving everything behind. This is a picture of great urgency. There's no time to dilly-dally. There's no time to be concerned about earthly items. You are to immediately gather yourself as you are and to flee from what is coming. When you see the abomination of desolation in the temple. This is indeed a common prophetic command in light of great destruction. Before God was to bring destruction on the nation of Moab, He told them in Jeremiah 48, Flee to save your lives. When destruction was coming on Jerusalem, or Babylon, excuse me, He said, Flee from the midst of Babylon, and each of you save his life. Do not be destroyed in her punishment, for this is the Lord's time of vengeance. Jeremiah 51. We read it earlier to those who were in Jerusalem at the time of 70 AD. He says, Flee to the mountains. And Jesus here is addressing those at the time of Antichrist. 
to flee, flee, run, run as quickly as you can. Now some see in this a fulfillment of Christians and some Jews who supposedly fled from Jerusalem before the destruction brought by Titus to a town called Pella near Jerusalem. That's possible. It's recorded for us in an ancient historian Eusebius. It's possible that at, some time, some, at that time some heeded that command in wise application of the Lord's words here and left Jerusalem. We can't be exactly sure. But in either case, the Lord here is looking beyond that to the final destruction that is coming under Antichrist. And notice two things in this command, just right on the surface. The first is this. This is an extreme mercy of God. This is an extreme mercy of God. Indeed, while the destruction will come upon many who do not give heed to God's word like a thief in the night, to those who are willing to listen, to those who are willing to pay attention to God's word, it is a mercy. He's telling them to flee from the destruction. He's giving them an opportunity for some relief, some lessening of the suffering and the pain that comes along with what's going to be enacted upon His people at that time. Notice also that there's a wisdom here that Jesus gives. There's a wisdom that knows when to flee. There is a time for God's people to flee from danger. Martyrdom can be wrongly achieved at times from a false bravado. From a false sense of courage. A courage that lacks wisdom. There should be a willingness of believers to die if faithfulness calls for it. But it should not be the result of a false kind of bravery. Of a foolish kind of rushing in to danger. Which has happened in the history of the church. Sometimes fleeing is the right option. J.C. Ryle had good comments on this. I'll read to you. Quote, he says, The servant of Christ undoubtedly is not to be a coward. He is to confess his master before men. He is to be willing to die if needful for the truth. But the servant of Christ is not required to run into danger unless it comes in the line of duty. He is not to be ashamed to use reasonable means to provide for his personal safety. The true martyrs are not always those who court death. There are times when it shows more grace to be quiet and wait and pray and watch for opportunities. May we have wisdom to know how to act in time of persecution. It is possible to be as well foolish as it is to be a coward. Quote. The point being this, there is a time to stand and there is a time to die for the name of Christ. There is a time and wisdom when you should flee because dying would lack the purpose and nobility of death that comes when one has no choice but to do so without compromising the truth. Someone mentioned recently that the shooter that was on the college campus in Oregon, of course we know that had called out some and asked them what their religion was or if they were Christians. And there was a courage that, that it took from those to not deny the name of Christ in that moment. And some indeed could argue that it was more courage in the second one than in the first, knowing the consequences that would come. And so it is here that Jesus says there is a time to flee. And the time to flee for those who are alive at this time is when they see this great blasphemy and sacrilege 
of this coming world ruler setting up his image in the temple. Notice secondly that the command comes then from the severity of judgment. The commands are severe because the destruction is severe as already noted. This is going to be a time of great persecution. Great persecution. We looked at some of that last week. It's the time when Antichrist breaks his false covenant of peace with, he says, those who are in Judea in verse 16. Again, noting that Jesus is addressing a specific people here. A specific people. It's a time of massive, massive death. Flip back with me just briefly to Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13. We won't flip around a whole lot, but there are a few verses that it's worth turning to. Zechariah 13 is right before Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. For some of those who may be tempted to go to the concordance, just start with Matthew, work backwards, you'll get there in a couple of books. In Zechariah 13, the prophet is again here addressing, as he does throughout the prophecy, prophecy, his book, a future generation. A future generation. A time of destruction that's coming upon the people of God. He says in verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. You might recognize that as referring to the time when be a fulfillment when his disciples scattered from Jesus when he was betrayed by Judas. He says, And I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. The third will be left in it. What is he looking forward to here? Well, he's looking forward to exactly what Jesus is describing. He's looking forward to this time of destruction under this world ruler, which is ultimately under the sovereign hand of God, where massive death will take place. Here, Zechariah indicates that two-thirds of those who are living in Jerusalem will be destroyed. Two-thirds of those living in Jerusalem and in Judea at that time will be destroyed. It will be a time of massive, massive death and destruction. But notice also what he says at the verse, end of verse 8. It will be a time of great salvation too. As we've noted throughout, he says the third part will be left in it and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested and they will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. They will cry out for salvation, the remnant. Those who are saved at this time, those who would turn to the Lord when they are aware of the Antichrist fury against their nation. These are indeed Jews who will be saved at the time of the great judgment. It's anticipated here by Zechariah. It was anticipated by Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Don't turn there. He said this, Now at the time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, listen, everyone who, was, who is found in the, written in the book will be rescued. God has a remnant. God has some whom He will spare. God has some whom He will save. 
And most likely, I think, this includes the 144,000 that John anticipates in Revelation chapter 7. The 12,000 from every tribe of the nation of Israel who will be saved. This is in part a fulfillment of what Paul anticipates in Romans chapter 11. The Jews, they will be saved. They will understand the saving reality of the covenant that God has made with them. And so here it is that they will flee from this great persecution under the Antichrist. Many will die. Most will die. Two-thirds, according to Zechariah, will be killed with the sword. They will die. Massive slaughter. But some will be saved. God will be faithful to His promise. Matter of fact, He says this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, of those who are saved those who are spared this destruction. He says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Three and a half years. Three and a half years. It's referring to the final period. Again, the period that Jesus is addressing in Matthew chapter 24. They will be protected They will be nourished by God to a place that He has prepared for them. They will flee to the mountains and some will make it to the mountains, though most will die. Some will be protected from the ongoing onslaught. These are those who will be saved. It is a place that has been prepared for them by God. Again, in the midst of such destruction, you see the mercy of God, the kindness of God towards those whom he has saved. And though they will undergo great hardships, as Zechariah said, they, he will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested, yet they will be spared from some of the worst of what is to come upon the world. Notice that this fleeing is marked by haste and pity. Haste and pity. Look at verse 17. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Two specific commands that address again the haste in which they are to respond to the first sign of the threat. In other words, the first wind you get of this abomination of desolation being set up in the temple, then you are immediately to respond and to flee and to run for the hills. Verse 17 says you must be without concern for material possessions. Now that might sound like a strange command to us. Whoever is on the housetop, whoever is on the housetop is not to come down. But that would have been, of course, well understood by those living in Palestine at the time. The heat and the geography caused houses to be constructed in a way that the roof was a part of their living. They often went up there to pray, cool off in the summer in the cool of the evening, sometimes Uh, Just to congregate up there. And so he's saying, if you're up there, you need to quickly get down and run. Now some see this as them running from rooftop to rooftop to rooftop, which there's incidents like that recorded and that's possible. But that's not likely what he's referring to here. He says, you must not go down to get the things out of the house. These houses were constructed with an outside 
access to the roof, a stairway going up, a ladder or whatever to the roof of the house. And he's saying, don't go down or get down from the roof. But when you do, don't turn back to get the things you think you'll need in your house. Simply run as fast as you can. Why? Because the moments that it takes you to grab anything out of the house could be the moments that cost you your life. could be the moment that brings death. So run. Run and flee as quickly as you can. Secondly, he says your flight must be without concern for any kind of comfort or even what you see as necessities. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Because of the heat, it was common for field workers to sometimes take off their outer garment and lay it at the edge of the field and then retrieve it at the end of the day. Jesus is saying here, look, those who are out in the fields, as soon as again you hear of the abomination being set up in the temple, instantly drop everything and run. The time it takes you to go back to the field, edge of the field, pick up your garment and continue running could be again the time of your death. It could cost you your life. So run, run as quickly as you can. Notice here that the event then is extremely unexpected and instantaneous. I think again this implies here the very nature of what's, what Daniel anticipated. That this abomination of desolation being set up, this turning of this final world ruler, will be a shock essentially to the Jews. He says in the middle of the week he will break his covenant. In other words, this is not what they were expecting. It is a shock to them. They are surprised. It's catching them by surprise. And he's saying, but be prepared to those who are there then and run, run. And he shows such great pity for them as well. Look at verse 19. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Usually when we hear woe, it's a pronouncement of judgment as it was all throughout chapter 23. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees and so on. But that's not how he means it here. He's not pronouncing judgment on those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies He's lamenting for the unique suffering that's going to come on this group. And again, mark in the midst of this judgment the mercy and the compassion of God to those who heed His words. He cares for the weak. They're going to bear the burden more severely. They have not only to flee with their own lives, but with the lives of their children. The woe highlights their misery, the extra physical and emotional burden that's going to be on this group of people. Indeed, some of the most horrific accounts that Josephus records for us in the terrors and the horrors of the famine were what happened with mothers and their children. We considered in the past one of the most horrifying, a mother killing her own child to roast it and eat it, an act that horrified even the captors. And yet that's precisely what happened and the things such as that will happen in the future. This is really quite sad. 
I read an article recently that said that the majority of number-wise, those who have fled Syria and the persecution there have been mothers with young children and pregnant women. Not only do they have themselves to care for, there's sick children. Many of them have had to take on responsibilities that make them the head of the household. They now have to get food. They now have to worry about shelter. They now have these children who need their constant care. It's a burden to them. It's a burden to them. It's harder. It's more difficult, especially when they're sick and so forth. And Jesus says it's the same here. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. It's going to be harder for you. It will be more difficult. But he follows that with a prayer of mercy. Look at that. They are to flee and they are to pray. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. And it's striking that Jesus would hear in the midst of such destruction that ultimately is coming from the hand of God as yet telling them to pray. Don't miss it. This is a reminder that even in the destruction, even in the suffering that they will go on, that God is present with them, those who know Him. God is aware of their situation. God is aware of the suffering that they're going to go through. He's active. He's present in the midst of judgment. And though He has planned it, and though He will ultimately bring it about, He is no less merciful at the same time and willing to show mercy to those who call on Him. First, He commands them to pray that their flight would not be in the winter. Why not in the winter? Well, it's a harder time in the winter. We're going to realize that very soon here, but even there, it's worse. It's not only the cold that came at night, but winter was the rainy season in Palestine. It's muddy. It causes flooding. The Jordan would swell, which they would have to cross, which would make it more difficult. The wetness of the rain would make the cold of the night more miserable. He's just saying it would be a more miserable time. Pray that that wouldn't happen then. Pray there would be some lessening of your misery. Not only those things, there'd be less food, so they would be hungry. There wouldn't be as many natural resources around. And that, again, would make it even harder on the women who were pregnant or who were nursing children and had them to care for. He says, pray also that it wouldn't take place on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath day. Why is that? Well, there have been lots of suggestions of what he means here. Some say it's because fastidious Jews would persecute those traveling on the Sabbath. Some say it would reveal them as being Christians. Some say that the shops and things would be closed and it would be harder. But I don't think any of those are really it. Most likely reason here is that some of the Jews would hesitate at that time who still had a consciousness about what they should do on the Sabbath. And that hesitation, he is saying, could cost you your life. Again, it could be the cause of your death. You are to leave with immediacy and haste. Run. Run as quickly as you can. So the first word is to flee quickly and to pray. The second word he gives to them is this. Is the reason for their flight. It's unparalleled suffering. Unparalleled suffering. Look at verse 21. And there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Again, the severity of the judgment is already implied in the urgency of Jesus' instructions to flee and to pray for mercy. And again, these were not uncommon instructions by God to those who were about to experience the destruction that He was going to bring. But here, Jesus grounds it in the uniqueness of these events. The uniqueness. 
He identifies it as a great tribulation, a tribulation that is unique among the world. It's significant here. This precise phrase actually is used two other times in the New Testament. In Acts 7.11, referring to a famine. In Revelation 2.22, referring to the great suffering that would come to those in Thyatira who do not repent of their deeds. And if left by itself, it may be argued that this could be the suffering of 70 A.D., as Luke was referring to, but Jesus doesn't leave it there, does he? He doesn't simply say that the suffering is going to be great. He says it is going to be a suffering like the world has never known until now, nor ever will. It's an unrepeatable kind of suffering. He doesn't say even that it's the worst suffering that will ever take place in the nation of Israel. He doesn't even say that. It's the worst suffering that the world has ever known. It's the worst suffering that has ever been among any nation or any people in the world. Now, Josephus, we hear his name a lot. We learn a lot of this period from him. He said this at the beginning of his book on the wars of the Jews. He said, Accordingly, it appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of the Jews, are not so considerable as they were. End quote. That's what Josephus says. What they suffered in 70 AD, which he records in his work, is the worst that any has ever seen. And no less than an eminent scholar like D.A. Carson says that that assessment is right. That despite the greater numbers of the suffering of Jews in the later years, there was a higher percentage of people who died in that one city of Jerusalem at that time that then would fit Jesus' words. And as was mentioned, indeed, over one million died, approximately, and nearly 100,000 taken captive. However, I'd suggest to you that that cannot be the case. It cannot be the case here. Though over 1.1 million are said to have died in the horrors of Auschwitz alone. Alone. Nearly 6 million total in the Holocaust. And while the horrors of starvation noted by Josephus and his accounts were horrific indeed, beyond our imagination, beyond what we can fathom, it's hard to say that the suffering of those who were in concentration camps and death camps and those taken from their families and their children killed and beaten and smashed to their heads right in front of these Jews and were crammed into these horrible chambers and died in more massive numbers was somehow not as bad and as significant as what happened in 70 AD. It's simply hard to fit that language into the horrors even of the destruction of Jerusalem then. And what that means then is that this is untold suffering. Untold suffering that is going to come to those who get caught in this hatred and persecution of the Antichrist. And again, it's significant that in Luke chapter 21, Jesus did not make that statement and say that it was the worst that it was come on the world or ever would be. Though when he was talking about 70 AD, no, this is going to be far worse. Worse than the million who died in Jerusalem. Worse than the millions that died during the Holocaust. Worse than anything the world has ever known or ever seen. Indeed, it will be the suffering to end all suffering. 
And it's something that's heightened by the supernatural nature of it. In other words, the suffering is not only human suffering that comes to the Jews under Antichrist's reign of terror, but it's also a suffering that is attendant with what God is doing in the world at that time. It is the great tribulation. He mentions this in Revelation 7.14, which is actually a third use of that phrase, but it is slightly different because it has definite article in front of it. In other words, he's specifying something very specific here in Revelation 7.14. He says, he's talking to an angel here, My Lord, John is, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He's looking there at a vision of those who were before God Redeemed saints who had come out of the great tribulation. The great tribulation. Which is the same time that Jesus is referring to here in Matthew chapter 24. It's referred to in other places. It's the last half again of the 70th week of Daniel. And it is a time of great suffering. And the reason that that is significant here is because again, it's not only the suffering of the Antichrist, but this great tribulation is referring also to the bold judgments that are going to come from God, mentioned in Revelation 16. Horrible, horrible events. Talks about the sea becoming blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. A bowl poured into the rivers and the spring of waters became like blood and so on and so forth. The sun is taken away. Great suffering. Great, great suffering. He says in verse 9, Men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. Now while those things are specifically set against the rebellious, against those who are against God, those who are part of the kingdom of the Antichrist, there is a secondary suffering that will be endured even by those who escape simply because of the massive devastation that is coming on the world at large. This is terrible, terrible suffering. Not only human suffering, but in some measure even a suffering that God is unleashing on the world. So it's a terrible time. It's a terrible time. But I want you to notice in ending here one thing, a couple of things. This is coming from the hand of God. This is an execution of the wrath that is certainly from the hands of the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians 2. The Antichrist, however, is the immediate cause. He's not the ultimate cause. He's the immediate cause, but he's not the ultimate cause. The ultimate cause here is the justice of God against his people for their rejection of him. First, to the nation of Israel. First, to the nation of Israel. He said, in verse 42 of chapter 21, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord. It's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. They had rejected their Messiah. They had rejected the plain testimony that God had borne to them of His salvation, the fulfillment of His promises. 
And there was the justice of God against that. Part of the calamities that he said would come. Would come until he says in verse 39 of Matthew 23. Until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we sometimes, Christians can sometimes have a very difficult time coming to terms with the severity of God's judgment. Even the reality of hell. Even the reality of suffering and difficulties in the lives of His own people. The reality is, it's because we have a weakened view of the heinousness of sin before God. of The depravity of man, of the wickedness of our fallen hearts. Christians of all people should not be surprised when God unleashes His restraint and brings judgment against the evil and the rebellion of man's heart. Christians of all people should not be surprised at the wrath of God against such wickedness and rebellion. The theological conundrum for Christians should be this. How come God allows such evil to go on without more destruction like this? without more response of His being provoked and hating that which dishonors His name? How come God has been patient for so long? How can He endure with sinners for so long? That should be our question. Indeed, this comes from the hand of God, and it is just, ultimately it comes from the hand of God. There is a suffering that is first required for His people to go through before they experience His salvation. God provided His Son on the cross. We sung about it this morning. To bear His justice against our sin. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on the cross. He displayed Him publicly before a watching world. He anticipated it and affirmed His coming through Scripture. He confirmed it in His life and He confirmed it ultimately in the resurrection of Christ by raising Him from the dead, declaring all that they should repent toward Him. And if a person or a nation or a people rejects His work in the Son, then it is only right that they would bear the consequences for that rejection in judgment. It's only right that these things would come. Listen to what he says again in Revelation 16. Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. True and righteous are your judgments. It's only right for God to pay back those who have persecuted His people, Paul said to the Thessalonian church. It's only right that He would come in vengeance to those who have rejected His name. It's only right that He would do that. It's fair. He has given every opportunity for grace. Every opportunity for grace. And the marvel is, again, that in the midst of this judgment of God, in the midst of the fury that is to come upon not only His people, but on the world, there is yet still the offer of grace. There is yet still mercy. 
even in his judgment, there is mercy. Listen to Joel 2. Just listen. Speaking of this terrible judgment that's going to come to his people, he says this in the midst of it. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garment. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. In the midst of it, God is still willing and extending a hand of grace and willing to forgive. And that's how it works. It's how it will work in the life of the nation of Israel. The great judgment and severity of their sin will lead to the salvation of the remnant by God's sovereign grace. That's how it is in His destruction of the world. Though most will be destroyed, yet there will be multitudes that we cannot count before the throne who will come out of the tribulation, worshiping God, clothed in robes that are white, ultimately clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's how it is and should function in part for us as we hear these words. For the Christian, you would hear these words and go, praise God that I have been rescued from this. My life is given to Him. I live for this King who is coming. I understand His judgment and it was taken from me at the cross. That is the foundation on which I build my life. But if that is not you, and if that is not what you say with confidence, what you see demonstrated in your life, then God's words of judgment are also a warning and a call to repentance. Just like with Joel. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to me. Be saved from the coming judgment that is to be placed on this world. So we should have great compassion and be the voice of the Lord even at this time to call people to repentance, to remind them of the severity of sin, to remind them of the judgment that is to come, and to remind them of the grace of God that He has accomplished in His Son on the cross and in the resurrection. May we be faithful witnesses to that and may we live with that sober reality that we deserve everything that's coming upon the world but Christ has borne that wrath for us who know Him on the cross. He's rescued us. He's freed us. He's saved us. We have not to fear God's wrath but only to rejoice in His mercy. Let's pray and then we'll cover the end of that next week. Father, we thank You for... Your word, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you supremely for your son. For you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life, would not perish eternally, would not suffer what your justice would rightly bring on us as sinners but be freed because your justice was satisfied in what Christ suffered on the cross. Your justice was satisfied in His death on our behalf. Your righteousness was satisfied not only in His death, but in His life. As He who was without sin, the spotless Lamb of God, gave Himself up on our behalf. Again, as Peter reminds us, Lord, Help us to be those who walk, yes, with your joy, your enduring joy, but also with the sobriety 
a sobriety that rightly views this world that we live in. It is a world that does not demand our affection, it demands our pity. It should not turn us away from the things eternal and the glories of the gospel, but to them in hope. Help us not to be bound by those things that so easily entangle our affections, but to set our mind on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, waiting for His return, Him of, in whom our life is hidden and in whom we rejoice and Him who we proclaim. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for your grace in Christ. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.